Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, we're excited to continue uh, in the book of James this morning. It's been an absolute series. James, absolutely great series. James is one of my personal favorite uh, books. I think it's really practical and simple um, and applicable to our lives. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 13. By way of review, uh, we've been in the book of James, and James uh, would be the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing to uh, Jewish Christians that have been scattered outside of Jerusalem on their pursuit of the way of Jesus. Um, And he's looking at the way they're living their lives, um, and comparing it uh, to the ethic and the, the way of the kingdom that he saw in the life of Jesus. And he's giving some exhortations, um, some encouragement about the way they're living, um, but most of it seems um, a little bit um, heavy-handed, especially the text that we just read uh, this morning. And so we've covered ways that James sees a disparity between the way these followers of Jesus are living and the coming kingdom of Jesus. In other words, if you're claiming to follow this way, to believe these truths, um, but you're living this way, let's let's make some adjustments on that. Um, We've covered the way they speak, uh, the way they walk through trials and temptations, how they wrestle with pride uh, and humility before gracious God, and today we're going to cover the topic of how they treat uh, the rich and the poor and how they plan out their lives. As, you, as we read um, with Amy. So I want to just jump right in. A lot of good stuff to cover today. Um, and so I invite you uh, into this first uh, part of James chapter 4, um, verse 13. He is giving a rebuke, um, as it were, to uh, the merchants of the day. So in my mind, when we read this text about them making plans, I picture them sitting around a table late at night with candles and maps and cigars you know, and um, planning out how they're going to go about their career and their occupation as a merchant. Today or tomorrow, we will travel, travel to this or to that city. We're going to carry on business, and we're going to make a profit. Um, and so uh, that sounds a lot uh, like what we all do for our jobs, right? And so I think we're wondering, what is the rebuke here? So I want to just take a moment and jump in and, and read this text again. He's talking to these merchants. Listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Um, I want to look at what's behind this action. I think when we first read this, we think about the idea of making plans. And what we, what we assume is that what James is saying here is that the fault of these merchants is that they're planning out their lives um, so directly. But I want to look at the two um, faults that they have. The first um, is that they are arrogant. They have miscalculated their capacity. If you look in verse 14, he says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And so his point is saying, you sit around uh, with confidence making these boastful plans about where you're going to go, how you're going to make money, 
But remember, as a human, you don't actually know what's going to happen tomorrow. Your ship could, your ship could sink. Uh, the market could crumble. Whatever you think will sell won't sell. Um, your savings could go down the drain. And so he's saying um, it doesn't make sense that you would be so, so well planned if you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, and it's not, it seems like their heart is a little bit arrogant about it. There's a gap between the capacity that they think they have um, and the capacity that they actually have. Secondly, um, they are boastful. And so if you continue to look, um, it says, what is your life? You are mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Um, these, these, are big, these are big people making big decisions. Um, they're, they are taking themselves very seriously, and I think there's a part of us that can relate to that. We feel the pressure of the world um, to have kind of our life planned out. Um, and if you really stop and think about it, does anyone know the name of their great-grandpa? You don't have to say anything, but a few of you do. Um, we live on this life for about... 85 years, um, and James is saying, you're, you're like a mist. Um, God and his purposes and his plans have been going on for much longer and will continue to go on forever. As important and as valuable as you think your life is, as big as your ego is, um, you are just a mist. And so they miscalibrate um, their, own, their own glory. And so the direction that, that James is going um, is saying that God has the capacity that you don't. God has the longevity that you don't. And so it seems unwise uh, or even arrogant to plan your life without the consideration of his plans. Make sense? Pretty simple. So I think as followers of Jesus, this is a text that's relatively familiar to us. Um, and I think it leads us in a direction that I, I think we need to do a little bit more work before we quickly jump to a direct uh, correlation to our life. Because I think um, the two misinterpretations of this text, especially as we continue um, on to verse 15, it says, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, as it is you boast in your arrogant schemes. Um, and so we've kind of developed this culture of thinking that as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't make plans, and that God's will is this kind of elusive, unknown um, plan for his life. And so we, we kind of have this lingo where we say, we tag Lord willing on the end of what we say, like, what are you going to do? Like, I'm going to go make a grilled cheese sandwich, Lord willing, you know? I'm going to go to Walmart, buy some cheddar cheese slices, Lord willing. I'm going to come home, put some butter on the pan, Make myself a grilled cheese, Lord willing. You know, like, well, what are you doing? I want to watch the last episode of Stranger Things, Lord willing. You know, <laughs> don't watch that show, it's great. Um, and so we kind of have this idea that God is this distant deity who has a specific plan for our life and that at any moment he could step in and give us a burning bush or just throw us a curveball. And since we don't know what he's going to do and we don't always even know what he wants for our life specifically, we say our plans hesitantly um, with the caveat of Lord willing so that we don't err in the way that we think uh, this text means. You following along with that? 
Um, and so what that leads is to a life where, um, yeah, God feels uh, very distant from us and we feel like we don't know what he wants and our mission is to figure it out, um, usually through some interesting signs. So if you're a college student and you're wondering, man, where should I go to college next year? Should I go OSU or should I go to U of O? And you're driving to work and you see three Beavers license plates you're like, God wants me to go to the Beavers, you know? <laughs> like, which is the correct choice, Pete? <laughs> um, I was playing cornhole with someone uh, who I won't name at summer camp, and he told me this joke that one guy's wearing a Beaver shirt because he went to OSU, the other guy's wearing a, a duck shirt because he went to Walmart. Um, <laughs> and <t> he's <laughs> sitting down here. Uh, um, interpret that as you will about what college to go to, but I think when we read, if it's the Lord's will, it's like we're sitting around, hesitant, um, a little bit scared, waiting for God to swoop down and give us a sign or steer our ship or give us a tragedy that's a curveball, and so the way we make plans is very hesitantly. I actually don't think that's what James um, is going for, and if you look at verse 15, and he says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. I think that if is something that throws us off. I think a better interpretation is maybe, since it is the Lord's will, we will do this or that. The comparison isn't between making plans and not making plans. It's between making plans that support your desires and your kingdom and build up like the economy of your ego and your security versus making plans according to God's will. Um, does that make sense? And so when James says, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And then he goes on to say in the end, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, uh, for them it is sin. I think we think that what we lack is knowledge of what God wants us to do, but really I think our lack is the desire to do what we know he wants us to do, right? Um, it's not a matter of n lacking knowledge, it's a matter of lacking the heart um, or the volition behind this. I think we get this a lot in our culture. And I'm working with high school students, young adults, um, all the time, and there is this pressure, um, I think, to manage your life and remain autonomous and in control and have a plan. Um, how many times do college students get asked what you're doing with your life and how will you make money doing that? Um, I think we live in a very independent culture where we each take care of our own self first before we consider caring for another. I uh, this last winter, we had lots of snow. Remember that? February. I know it's hot right now, but... Um, I watched as every person opened their garage door, took out the shovel that they owned and shoveled their own driveway up until the side, where the sidewalk meets your neighbor's property, that's when you stop. So there's just a wall of snow. Um, the same thing with our yards, we fertilize our grass and we each own a lawnmower and we each have our own savings account and retirement account and our job. And I think it's so easy culturally to fall into valuing independence autonomy, uh, winning. It's we are here to advance, we are here to progress. Um, I am going to secure what I need by making very solid plans. Um, and I think that 
attitude is what James is getting at when he's talking to these merchants, and I think that's where it hits our life. Um, and beneath that action, I think, is, is something that we're all longing for, is security, value, um, a purpose. And so um, we hope that by acquiring a certain amount of money, by acquiring a certain career, by acquiring a certain network, um, we've actually created a bubble around us so that we can't be hurt. James actually comes out that and says, how, like, how sure is that for you? At any moment, um, whatever you're resting in uh, could crumble. Um, one, one drop of the uh, financial system or whatever it is, you lose your job. It, it's not as secure as you think. Um, I was reading stories about Oregon's history and the history of Bend. I thought if I live here, I want to understand some of the history that's here. Um, there's a story about um, a guy who um, lived in San Francisco, and there, he was part of a banking system that crumbled. And so basically, I mean, we all know that the banks don't actually have the money that we have in them, right? Like, if we all went and took our money out, we wouldn't have the money. So, like, that's weird. Um, so he finds out that this bank system has uh, the bottoms fallen out, and he, he will lose all of his money. But he knows there's another branch in Portland that is of the same bank, and that they won't find out about that until a ship sails up the coast and tells them. So he hops on his horse, and he starts hauling from San Francisco to Portland. He's sleeping one or two hours a night. He stops in the city, trades out his horse, gets on another one. He finally arrives in Portland after, after days of horseback riding, so just put yourself in his shoes. Um, buys a hotel room with a safe, walks down to the bank, takes all of his money out, and by the time he got back from putting it in his safe, that bank had already found out, and there was a line out the door, and people were furious. And he rode from San Francisco to Portland to save his money. Um, but, but I think there's a sense of a false security that we have um, in what our culture and what our hearts are pursuing. And James is a little bit empathetic. He says... It's not as much of a rebuke as an encouragement. He says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I think there's good news in realizing that we don't have to take ourselves so seriously, that we are just a small blip on the radar and the, the temptation for consuming and discarding and progressing and winning in our culture is something that we don't have to carry, that we don't have to buy into. And so I think the question is, if James isn't saying don't make plans, how do we know what plans to make? How do we know what God's will is um, for my life? And I think, I don't know where it came from, but I, when I talk to a lot of high school and college students about what they're gonna do with their life, the conundrum comes up as I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. And somehow in our Christian subculture, we've kind of just developed this idea that God, for each of us, has this very specific plan, but he won't tell us. He won't tell us. And so we need to go around looking for signs like beaver stickers and try to guess what God wants out of this needle in a haystack um, type thinking. And if we get it wrong, if you marry the wrong person, well, you just, you just messed up everyone else after you, first of all. But if, you, if what job should I take? What house should I buy? Who should I marry? Where should I go to college? What should I study? Um, all, all these types of things, they're very self-centered questions, and they're future-oriented. 
And so somehow we've come to believe God's will means something that I need to do for my future, that God wants me to do, I need to pay attention to him. But when, I, when we read scripture and we step back, God's will is much more than just a specific path for your life. I do think there are burning bush moments like Moses has, the call of Abraham in scripture. I think we've learned these stories growing up, and so it's kind of become part of our theology. But for the most part, God has made it clear what he's up to and what he's about in this world. And here at Antioch, we would say uh, the reconciliation of all things and that it's future-oriented. We're looking as to what is God up to. He's about caring for the poor and the marginalized. He's about bringing hope to the hopeless. He's about reconciling and healing the wounds that you have inside of you and creating a world and an ecosystem and um, human relationships that are flourishing. And none of that is really rocket science or unknown. I think it's something that we, we all already know what God is up to. We don't need to sit here and wonder. Um, it's just a matter of are we going to plan accordingly? And I think that's maybe a new idea um, that rather than sitting around, around our table as merchants, planning how we are going to sustain our own lives um, with detail and scrutiny, what if we took that same zeal and that same energy and applied it individually and corporately as to how we are pursuing the will of God uh, today, in the present? Um, and I think that's another disparity is we're always so future-oriented with God's will. And like a faithful future path following God's will is just a continuous stream of faithful moments, of faithful nows. Um, it reorients us from thinking about what God might want us to do, but how he wants us to live. Um, right now, I talk to college students, or students all the time, about what college they're going to go to, um, and they're so concerned about it. Um, and when I think about the will of God for a student at college, it would be study well, study hard. Uh, love the students that are around you, treat your professors well, engage in the community that you're in, study with integrity, don't cheat, maintain um, your spiritual life, join a church community and serve and partner in there, pursue health, pursue healthy relationships. And I look at their lives now, I'm like, you know, you're doing none of those things, right? <laughs> so it's like, you're wanting God to tell you what to do, and I think he already has, and I think there are there's an element where he's like, I will, I will progress you to the next stage as you prove faithful um, in this one. You're worried about who you should marry. Maybe we should worry about how we will be married and how we're living as single people um, to be faithful to our future spouse, to have a faithful uh, sexual ethic as we follow the way of Jesus. I think this is what God's talking about, and this actually takes time. I don't know anyone who Sabbaths well but doesn't plan for it. I think we should move our intentionalities away from sustaining ourselves to following um, the will of God. It's a movement from the future to the present. It's a movement from our own ego to the other. And it's a shift from big plans um, to little moments. I think of uh, a picture of a, of a father who owns a woodworking business and has trained up his son into how to make tables and chairs um, traditionally with traditional woodworking skills. The son turns 20 and he's like, hey, I want you to go to this town and start your own woodworking business. And that son travels there. And the first thing he does is calls his dad like, hey, what building should I buy? Like, what should I name my company? What color should our like work polos be with their names embroidered on them? You know, like, he's like, I don't need, I don't need to like dictate these details. What I want you to do is 
uh, be a woodworker with the ethic and with the skills that I taught you. Does that make sense? Where I don't think um, God's connection to us is this like phone call away. I think his spirit is living within us, um, allowing us to understand and see he's invited us into knowledge of his will and asked us to live it out. I think there's a beauty to the creativity um, that we bring to that process. I think for a lot of um, younger adults uh, right now, um, this actually, um, the, the rebuke here isn't in that you are making lots of plans um, for your own self. I think there's a whole cultural movement that's seen maybe the baby boomers pursuit of the white picket fence, suburban lifestyle, retirement account, um, money, 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 work, work, work. Um, and there's a reaction against that to not making any plans at all and not working hard towards any goals. And so the new idol isn't our own financial security, it's our own freedom. And I think uh, this text actually rebukes that, that the work that God is inviting you into is his work. That work isn't just a means to make enough money to have our freedom. Um, and I think this confronts even the bend lifestyle of, I don't want to make a commitment. I don't want to lock in. I don't want to plan ahead because something cooler or something more exciting might come up. I want to keep my options open. I think James is inviting us into the, the zeal that these merchants have to pursue wealth and finances is the same zeal that we should pursue discerning God's work in our lives, discerning God's work in our city, in our church, the way we work together as a body. Um, and so for young people in the room, I love you, um, there is a place for committing and putting in the work and putting in the hours um, and um, an idol that is better uh, than, or freedom should not be um, your biggest idol. Um, lastly, I feel like in this text, um, it may sound like a rebuke. We're going to get to the, chapter 5 where it's clearly a rebuke, um, a very intense language. Um, I do see James' heart here um, as, as empathetic towards us. Do we like the rat race and the pressure to win? talk to high school students all the time, freshmen, sophomores that are taking three or four AP classes. When I was in high school, you couldn't take an AP class until you were a junior or a senior, and there was like four. A history, calculus, whatever. Now there's like 17 AP classes. I have students that um, are stressed out of their minds about homework at a high school level to get to college, to get a career, to get a job, to get I mean, the list would continue on, and whatever you arrive at, I think, is, is your idol. I think we're exhausted. I think we're stressed. Um, we've created a world of luxury um, and anxiety somehow. I don't think that what we're hoping our, our work gets us is actually giving it to us. When I, in, in 2012, I worked at a camp called Honey Rock Camp in northern Wisconsin. It was part of Wheaton College, and I was a ninth grade uh, counselor. And so what we did, we took um, these kids, these ninth graders from Chicago, so it was a pretty nice, expensive camp, so they were pretty well-off kids. We'd ship them up to Wisconsin for three-week chunks of time, and um, they would spend three weeks at camp, and within 24 hours of them arriving, we had a backpack on them, like vintage 65, 70-liter backpack full of, like, this isn't REI gear, this is like camp gear, it's like pots <laughs> and heavy tents, and whatever, and they brought like their sleeping bag that doesn't compress, you know, rookies. Uh, and so I don't know if you've ever met a ninth grader, but some of them are like this big, some of them are bigger. 
But just imagine a 65-pound pack stuffed on, like, a little kid. Like, it's hilarious. Um, and so, like, hey, thanks for coming. Uh, we were taking you on a five-day hike through the wilderness, this huge loop all around the woods of northern Wisconsin. Um, what would happen is we would arrive, we'd set up camp, and in the morning, um, there was this, we kind of formed a circle with our packs, and it was the point where you decided what you were going to put in your own pack, right? And so I'm out doing some stuff, I come back, and there's still like half of our stuff is piled in the middle, and everyone's pack is full, you know? <laughs> it doesn't hold anymore, so I go around and pick up the bags, like, nope, you need this, and just make them carry it. Um, I think that's what we feel like our lives are just, we're carrying this, this heavy pack um, towards the end of our first trip. Um, these kids are navigating with just a compass and a, like a 30-year-old map as well. Like, I mean, this is like hardcore camp. Um, so we finally, we've hiked all day. We're exhausted. We're sweaty. We're arriving at our camp, and we're walking across this swamp for two, 300 yards, and you're just stepping in it, and there's like bees flying around. It was miserable. We were all so ready to be there. We get to the edge of the swamp, and we can see our campsite right there, but there is this river that cuts through, and we zoom out, and basically we walked like a mile in this direction. We need to loop the whole way out around, get the whole way back to camp, and um, one of our ninth graders sees that, and he just sits down <laughs> in the swamp, in the bees, and he starts crying. <laughs> And so I send the rest of the group away, and I don't know why, why I stayed with him. Just kidding. That's what you're supposed to do, guys. <laughs> so I, was, I, didn't, I chose not to sit down, but I sat there with Luke um, and watched him cry. And I was like, hey, buddy, like, we're almost there. We need, we need to make it. But Luke could just not take another step. I think, I think we feel like that. We are striving we are exhausted, and we feel pressure. Um, and James is looking at us and saying, you, you don't need to take yourself so seriously. You're missed. You don't need to trust in the culture. You don't need to trust in your own knowledge. You don't know what tomorrow is going to happen. And so instead of planning for your own egos, for your own empires, what if you shifted that and planned in sync with God, who is bringing his kingdom, who does know the future, does know how he designed you, and has a beautiful plan for your life, not as something that's planned out that you need to follow, but something for you right now, right in this moment. It's an invitation um, to bear the bearable yoke, the easy yoke of Jesus. Um, I think when we, when we posture ourselves this way, we find um, blessing. I don't know if you get to know your neighbors well. I think if you live as a good neighbor to your neighbors, what's funny is that that comes back um, to bless you. I think our student ministry leaders, they put in some of the most hours and the most um, intense counseling sessions with our kids and going on these trips where you're sleeping on church floors. But I bet you that our middle school and our high school leaders are some of the most blessed volunteers uh, within the Antioch system because when Christmas comes around, you get a card, you get the hug, you get the smile. I think Jesus actually designed this yoke that seems difficult to bear, but is actually um, really, really good news. Here is the good news. We are invited into a life of great value and that has a reliable foundation by allowing God's purposes to direct our plans rather than our own. Although we are missed, we are united to Jesus and can creatively join God on his mission in the world. Humble, intentional faithfulness provides a more reliable foundation than our arrogant 
plans. So I created this chart. Um, Joseph, if you want to just skip to the second one, we can just compare and contrast. Um, and so on the left, we kind of have the way our um, Christian bubbles have maybe taught us that God is tricky and far away. Humans need to be detectives waiting for a burning bush. God's will is a specific path that God wants me to walk in the future. And my mission is to try really hard to figure out God's will for my life. Um, the good news side, the news that I think James is calling um, followers of Jesus to, I think he's calling us as a church to in this city, um, I think confronts the culture of Bend really well. Um, that God is actually clear and close. He's not playing weird games. If he wants you to know something, he will. He always has. Um, but humans are made in God's image and filled with God's spirit. And I think this kind of takes some of the guesswork out of uh, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is that part of, I think, the beauty of God having his body on earth as us is we have our own creativity in our own minds. And I don't think it's this like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like you must do this to follow me. That rhymes. That's awesome. Um, that was really weird. Uh, but you, we have a brain and, that, and a heart, and those are, have been baptized in the Spirit of God, and I think we're free to creatively employ um, our vocation in this world. Uh, the, the will of God is not unknown. It's very clear. It's the reconciliation of all things. Um, and our mission is to humbly and creatively join God on his mission. Our problem is not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of uh, humility to join uh, what God is doing. Um, I want to dive into this next chapter and chapter five, and I think this is the progression of if this goes unchecked, if this desire to pursue wealth and power and security is not unchecked, we get to a very oppressive world and a, and a world that looks drastically different than the world that God is bringing um, to, to our life. And so I want to read uh, James chapter five and just hear the intensity of his language, and I want to dive a little bit into why I think he's being so intense. Now listen, you rich people. So you know who you are. <laughs> just kidding, none of us are rich. Anyone who's just a little bit richer than us, those are the rich people, right? Just kidding. Uh, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. By the way, those are the only imperative verbs in this whole chunk. The only thing you're supposed to do is to weep and to wail. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. And you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. So super intense, right? Look at the next thing. Um, be patient then, brothers and sisters. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> what were you doing? He took a break, right? He had to get a drink break. Um, so he, he's fired up. Uh, James names four evils that the rich are guilty of, hoarding wealth, giving unfair wages to those who you're con consuming products from or you're in an economy with, um, the pursuit of luxury and self-indulgence, and murdering innocent people, I think he means by way of um, taking um, valuables from the poor and hoarding them 
as rich. James has some interesting observations on the rich and the poor. Um, the first is that it seems that these Christians uh, that James is talking to were actually kind of held the rich in high esteem. Earlier when it talked about showing favoritism, it's the rich that they were showing favoritism to. And so, um, and the interesting line there is that these are the same rich people that are oppressing them. So I think there's a sense where James is not just rebuking these Christians as being wealthy, but he's, he's giving hope to poor Christians against the opposition of the wealthy, if that makes sense. And so, for some reason, there was this idolization of wealth and of power, I think, a root sin that um, is responsible for what we just read earlier about planning as a merchant. Um, and the reason that James gets so aggressive, I think, is not, not because you're breaking some like minute moral standard, like, hey, money is trap, you know, like, don't try to pursue it, try to be fair, don't live in so much luxury. It's just like this moral code that, like, you're at, like, a seven, bring it down to a four, and we're good. You know, I think James is comparing the, the way that these followers of Jesus are living and then an ethic of God's coming kingdom. He's saying God is moving in this direction. He is moving about caring for the broken, about bringing justice to the oppressed, about caring for the poor and the lowly and the outcasts and those who, who don't have the privileges of our society. And so he is on a path of bringing his kingdom to this point. And so you who say you follow him are actually creating an economy that goes in the other direction. He's saying you're, like, you are, you are the ones who will be judged. Um, why are you trying to be on that team? Um, it's as if we're pigs um, who our sole purpose is to become bacon one day, which, great. It's a, it's a sacrifice worth making. Um, but who are just hoarding wealth, um, which is like eating up the slop and fattening yourselves, and, and you think that's awesome. You think you have all this food, but all it is is like fattening you for the day of slaughter, he, he pictures. And so um, as we um, wrestle with, I think, a culture that is the wealthiest of, of ever, that if we're sitting here, um, we probably have privilege and wealth that um, many don't have. I think it's interesting to note that the pursuit of wealth is, is so tempting. Um, and, yeah, it's a matter of valuing human life. And so if, if Jesus is about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, to hoard wealth, to live in luxury and self-indulgence, to um, progress social systems that are oppressing the poor is entirely against God's kingdom. It's it's you are putting yourselves in the shoes of someone that will be judged. And so I think he's so um, frantic in his words because he cares about this so much and he doesn't want anyone um, to walk down that path. There's a quote um, from N.T. Wright that says this, the global economy is designed to produce an effect where most of the money flows steadily in one direction. This is reproduced locally as small groups in power make sure they possess not just enough, but more than enough, and then more again, while others struggle. I think this reveals an idol we have, that we think a couple extra zeros in our bank account is a more secure place to be. 
um, than in step with the will of God. For Antioch, I think this has a couple um, explicit applications. Uh, the first is that I think there's a call to repent, uh, to humble ourselves. Um, as we read in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Rich people weep and wail. Um, this is a sign of like David realizing that he took um, something from someone that they had only a little of and he had a lot of, and he rips his clothes and he covers himself in ashes and he humbles himself. Um, I think it's a call to repent of the ways that the idols of our hearts have created injustices in the world, um, that way that we try so hard to secure our own security rather than keeping in step um, with God's spirit. The second uh, would be to discern your vocation. I think um, this is a really interesting thing that we're working with a lot in a lot of our groups here at Antioch is figuring out how God wired you um, and where you fit, uh, not just in your career, but in your family, um, in your church, in your community, and in your city. Um, and then taking that, number three, and joining uh, the body of Christ is that what's really cool about sitting down over a table and planning out how we're going to embody God's will in this city in this moment is that we can do it together. I think as a staff, we see um, the beauty and the skill and the talent and the gifting of our entire Antioch community, and my brain just starts to go, like, what would it look like if all of Antioch was in sync and we were using our gifts and in our lane and supporting one another and caring for this city. I think we could do fantastic things and I think there's a core of us that are in that. Um, my hope is that all of us as a community would discern our vocations, figure out where we fit in the body and plan well as to how um, we're gonna join the body of Christ. And the last one um, is to confront your idols. I think we need to do a little bit of heart work and figure out what's deep down beneath our stress and beneath our striving. Um, where is the location of our hope and where is our trust? And I would hope that it's, it's good news that you are missed because God is not. It's good news that you don't know tomorrow because God does. Um, towards the end of the ministry of Jesus, uh, it's a dark time for him. He's about to be betrayed and um, crucified and unjustly uh, tried. Um, and there's this moment in two Gospels called um, the widow's might. Um, and in this story, a small, <laughs> small widow, she's not small, she's just a widow. A widow um, walks into the temple to give, their, to give her tithes, to give her offering, and everyone else is dropping. It's, it's a public thing. They're dropping in large amounts of cash. So she reaches in her pocket, and between her two fingers, she grabs two small copper coins. Um, and Jesus says that that's all that she has to live on. And she takes those and she puts them in the offering. Um, and no one sees it, but Jesus calls attention to it, um, which is actually unique. And he calls his disciples and says, hey, you see that widow? She gave all that she had to live on, those two small copper coins. I think there's a bit of unique irony in Jesus's in Jesus' language and in his tone. And while everyone else is giving out of their abundance, maybe not giving the first fruits or giving all they have, they're keeping a, a bit back to rely on, um, to lean on. Um, and Jesus says she gave all she had to live on, I think smiling, knowing that only by doing that did she access all she needs to live on. Um, she was not hoping in culture to save her. She was probably never gonna be wealthy, and so she took something that she could have hoarded, she could have worked for and trusted in, she gave it up, 
to trust um, Jesus, to trust uh, the kingdom. And so I think that's the invitation that we have. And so this morning, I invite you as a community um, to the Lord's Supper, and I hope that it can be an experience of repentance, that we're looking to a Savior um, that knows us, that is up to something really, really big, and he's invited us into um, that we can be um, a part of, and he is worthy of your trust. He is the foundation that won't fade away. And as as people who are baptized in his spirit, we are invited to join him on his mission. I hope it's one of joy. I hope it's a yoke uh, that is bearable. And I'm really, really excited for all that God is doing through the Antioch community and will continue to do um, as we remain faithful to this work. So, um, sound good? I think we can do it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll um, spend some time responding in worship and receiving the Lord's Supper. Father, we come to you and, rep- and humbly repent of our idols, of what gets beneath our workaholism and our inability to rest. We confess that we are exhausted in the rat race, um, trying to win and trying to advance. And with open arms, we ask um, that you would give us the strength and the humility to see what you're up to in each moment, to pay attention to those around us. I'm going to have the courage to trust that if we follow you in in the moments, we will have followed you on the path. Pray for Antioch, um, that wherever we're at in our journey, if we're exhausted or if we're lazy, um, that we would figure it out um, and that um, you would continue to draw us closer together as a body who is on mission uh, in this city. In your name, amen.